So, leadership. You know, history is littered with fantastically bad leaders, right? Uh, we have leaders who are really good leaders but are terrible people. Uh, we probably can think of a lot of examples. Hitler, Joseph Stalin fit that. Uh, we have others who are just amazingly incompetent when they get into their job. Um, there's a guy named Robert Willemstead. He was the CEO of AIG, an investment firm, in 2008 for three months. Three months he was the CEO, and news pundits were blaming the entire 2008 and 2009 recession on his three months in office. That is some pretty amazingly incompetent leadership right there. If you do something for three months and everything in the country gets blamed on you, you know you have failed. Uh, I don't know where you go from that point. You, you just work at Starbucks or something. Just start all the way over. And of course, history is also filled with bad leadership advice. This one has been repeated a few times and it's terrible leadership advice. The first rule of leadership, everything is your fault, which of course was given in that iconic film, A Bug's Life. Yeah, but it has been repeated as leadership advice or the iconic words of the two-time prime minister of England, Benjamin Disraeli. He said this, I must follow the people. Am I not their leader? Which I think Disraeli could have been helped by hearing from the comedian Lewis Grizzard, who said, life's like a dog sled team. If you're not the lead dog, the view doesn't change. His entire leadership structure was based on following everybody else's opinions and views. That's not a good recipe for success as a leader. You might as well give up now. And then, of course, you have leaders who aren't like bad people, like Hitler, and they're not incompetent enough for an entire country's recession to be based upon them, but they've just gotten really disconnected from the people that they're leading. Uh, Sarah and I encountered this when we took our first job out of seminary, and we were excited about it. It was in Connecticut. We uh, were we had we both had jobs, which was big. If you're a pastor and you can both get a job, that's pretty important because that doesn't always happen. Uh, and so we were excited about it. We liked the senior pastor. We were excited to come on board. So we moved. We came. We saw, and within the first two weeks, almost every single person on the church board, which was more than 10 people, met with us and expressed their frustration with where the church was leadership-wise and their desire for the senior pastor to quit sometime soon. Uh, how staff for the first couple of weeks on the job, fresh out of seminary, we were like, say what? What's going on? The senior pastor wasn't a bad guy. He had not done anything morally. There was no failing, really. He was just so disconnected from the needs and the desires of his church that it had reached a point where everybody was just kind of like, can we get somebody else in this role? And he actually did end up quitting. He resigned three months after hiring us, and then our life changed again. Uh, he wasn't bad. He was just completely out of touch with what he was supposed to be doing. It's like that quote, if you're leading and you turn around and nobody's walking behind you, you're just going out for a walk. You're not actually leading anybody. 
There's bad advice, there's bad leadership, there's incompetent leadership. And for me, it leads me to this point at the end of the day that I just want to come down to these two questions and kind of ask them a lot whenever I'm following people is, who am I following? And does their leadership actually reflect the leadership of Jesus? Are they leading in a way that they are staying the course true to Jesus and what it is that he's called them to do? Because even the best leaders, people who, who have good intentions, who love Jesus, can fail. And we know this really well today, right? I think in the past couple of weeks, there's been more stories that have come out of uh, whether you're Catholic or you're Protestant. We don't have a lot to be proud of, honestly, right now when you look at leadership in news headlines. Uh, there's been a lot of stuff that keeps coming out more and more. And it's not that people are failing more often than they did 200 years ago, but thanks to TV, social media, and the internet, I think we just find out about it a lot faster. But we have mega church pastors who are resigning due to scandal. We have priests who are arrested on charges of abuse. Bishops who are then found out to have been covering up those charges of abuse for years. We have pastors who've been using their influence and their power to control churches into going along with things that they didn't actually want to go along with, to hide things they didn't actually want to hide, but they didn't know how to break out from under the grip that the pastor had on them. All often, these are people who did not start out as bad people. They didn't start out to be bad leaders, but over time, they had allowed sin in, and instead of confessing it and getting help, they just dug in deeper. And that's what happens when we choose that path. Because the reality is that leadership is hard. Today we're going to be in Ezekiel 34, uh, which nobody dies in, so that's good, right? <laughs> it's, it's a different one than we've had recently. Uh, but it's a chapter that's all about what happens when leaders fail. When people who used to be good people who had good intentions got too focused on their own comfort and their own self-protection and not on leading the people that God had called them to lead. But in that place of human failure, we have a lot of good news. And that's this, that God doesn't hear, he doesn't see our failure and throw his hands up in the air and throw a tantrum and say, why are these humans so stupid and inept? Why can't they do a simple thing? He simply comes down and leads us. He cares for us when we fail. He takes over and writes the ship. He shows us what true leadership looks like. And so that's where we're going to be this morning. Will you pray with me? And then we're going to jump into Ezekiel 34. Holy Spirit, I just ask for you to, to come even more clearly and begin to show yourself to us this morning. I thank you for your presence. I thank you that uh, you are here with us, that you want to speak to us. And we just invite you to come and speak to us today. I do ask, Jesus, that you will bring healing to places in our hearts where we've been hurt by bad leaders, by bad leadership. Uh, I pray that you'll bring grace for us as leaders in areas that we know that we failed. And I pray, Jesus, that you will help us to have confidence to follow you above any human, above any system in this world. Help us to follow your leadership this day. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Ezekiel 34. If you have a Bible, open up to that. If you don't have a Bible, you can get one at the front or in the back at any point. We're going to start in verse 2. It says this, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds, the leaders of Israel. Give them this message from the sovereign Lord. What sorrow awaits you shepherds who feed yourselves instead of your flocks? Shouldn't shepherds feed their sheep? For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search and find my sheep. I will bring them home. I will feed them. They will lie down in pleasant places and feed in the lush pastures of the hills. I will search for my lost ones who strayed away and I will bring them home again. I will bandage the injured and strengthen the weak, but I will destroy those who are fat and powerful. I will feed them, yes, feed them justice. And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. He will feed them and be a shepherd to them. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among my people. I, the Lord, have spoken. So a man walks into a movie theater, and as he's sitting down, he looks to the left and the right, and he pauses when he looks to the left, and he just like immediately goes, aren't you a sheep? And the sheep looks at him like, yeah. And the guy goes, well, what are you doing watching this movie? And the sheep looks at him and says, I liked the book. Sheep and shepherds aren't totally relatable for us, right? Uh, I grew up in rural Ohio, so I actually did have friends, like close family friends who were sheep farmers. Uh, anybody else? <laughs> yeah, one, and she's from Wisconsin. Okay, we Maine, there we go. Anybody from Massachusetts have sheep farmer friends? Not very many of us. Uh, this isn't a totally relatable analogy for us, but it's covered in the Bible because it was completely relatable to them. This was culturally and biblically uh, pretty common for them. Uh, Hammurabi, the author of the uh, famous Hammurabi Code, which was kind of the first law code that's innocent until proven guilty. Uh, he was an ancient king of Babylon, and he called himself this. He said that he was the shepherd who brings salvation and whose staff is righteous. The king of Israel, the kings of Israel were always called shepherds of Israel. This was like really common from the time of David on. And of course, David himself went from shepherd to king. So that's a pretty big uh, pay increase when he made that move. And God's people are called sheep. So we get to, we get to own that one a little bit. Psalm 103, he made us and we are his we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. In Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But in Ezekiel 34, it's not a, a, a term of endearment that we see here. God says that the shepherds of Israel have failed. The kings and the leaders had consistently turned away from God and cared more about themselves than about the people that they were supposed to be leading. Bad leadership tends to have certain characteristics, and it's true in Ezekiel's time, and I think it's still true in our time. Bad leadership tends to be selfish and focused only on what benefits the leader. Self-interest 
is more important than actually caring for the people that you have been called to lead. And bad leaders are often either fine with or oblivious to the suffering of the people that they're leading until that suffering starts to affect them. Comfort and control are the keys to bad leadership. If you're following somebody who is doing those things, watch it. It's not a good sign. So why doesn't God just wipe the slate clean and get rid of these terrible leaders? Well, the simple answer is because they asked for it. The Israelites asked for this, and so he let them have what they wanted. The last non-king leader of Israel was a man named Samuel. And when he was getting older, uh, all of the rest of the leaders came to him and said, uh, your sons are a joke, and we don't see anybody else who we want to be our leader, so give us a king. Everybody else has one. We want one now. And Samuel was super upset about it. So he prayed and he talked to God. And this is what God said about it in 1 Samuel 8. Do everything they say to you, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me as their king any longer. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. And then he tells them how a king wants part of everything that they have, part of their money, part of their land, part of their food, part of their animals. No shocker there, right? Taxes on everything. He wants some of it all. But verse 19, but the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king. We want to be like the nations around us. The Lord replied, do as they say and give them a king. God warns us, but at the end of the day, he allows us to choose. And if I was him, I wouldn't because he can see how much pain our choices are often going to bring when we go down bad paths, but he still lets us choose. And he let the Israelites choose. He let them choose this because they just wanted to be like everybody else. That's a bad reason for following a certain leader. It's just because everybody else is. It's a bad reason to follow them if it's just because they're the best of the available options. A bad reason to follow a leader is because they allow you to remain comfortable. Because the flip side of that coin is that if somebody is only in power because they allow certain people to remain comfortable and powerful, then that means that other people are not comfortable and are not powerful. They're taking it out on somebody else in order to allow you to maintain the comfort that you want bad reasons to follow somebody, and yet we constantly choose to follow people based on similar reasonings. Israel shepherds had been reckless and destructive, but Israel had chosen them, and they weren't willing to turn away from it. So God steps in, and he wipes the slate clean. He says, I myself will tend my sheep, and I will set over them one shepherd. He will feed them and be a shepherd to them. Who is the shepherd that God sends? It's not David reincarnated, although he says David. It's a new David. It's Jesus. He himself comes when we have failed time and time again, 
and becomes the leader, becomes the shepherd, becomes the savior that we need in those moments of extreme leadership fails. Jesus is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34, and he's the ultimate good shepherd. And so I want to look at John 10, uh, a passage that really reflects this, this shepherding leadership idea that Jesus has. If you have your Bible, you can flip to that. That's where we're going to be the rest of our time this morning. John 10, verse 3. The sheep recognize the shepherd's voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them. He walks ahead of them and they follow him because they know his voice. Verse 9 says, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy, but my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold and I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. Now, if you've never met a shepherd, you might not know this, but shepherding is not an easy job. Uh, it's like terrible on your back because uh, you're, you're sleeping outside all the time, so it's not comfortable. You never get eight hours of sleep. You never get to sleep in a real bed. Uh, it's challenging, especially in their culture, because your job involved every day knowing a map of the entire surrounding area because they lived basically in the desert. So you had to find new grass, new lands to be able to feed your sheep at every day. So you were doing this constant rotation, walking all over the place with these herds of sheep. Uh, the shepherd can't focus on their own well-being because they're the only line of defense. If they run, the sheep are goners. There's, there's, no, there's no hope for them. If a dangerous animal comes, their only hope is that they can take down the dangerous animal. Otherwise, they're done. They're, it's kind of a lonely job. It, it requires some wits, and it requires a willingness to sacrifice yourself a little bit. And so as we continue, I want to look at three aspects of a good shepherd. And the first is this, that a good shepherd teaches his sheep to follow his voice. Now, has anybody ever heard that sheep aren't the smartest animals in the barn or the sharpest tools in the shed? They have kind of a bad reputation when it comes to intelligence, which usually makes Christians get a little antsy when we start getting compared to them because it's like, hey, what are you trying to say? But they have a couple of good qualities. One of those is that they do learn the voice of their shepherd, and they know to only follow that voice, and they're super stubborn about it. If somebody else tries to call the sheep, they'll just kind of flat out refuse. Maybe that's where their lack of intelligence comes from. I don't know. They get that, that reputation because of that. What's interesting, if you've ever watched a Western, which I'm sure many, if not most of us have, Whenever you see cattle being moved, it's always that they're being driven, right? 
There's these guys on horses. They're shooting their guns in the air, doing whips, whatever macho, you know, overstated thing that they're doing to get all the cattle to move really, really fast in one direction. They're, they're motivated by fear. They're driven hard to the next place. Sheep are the complete and total opposite. You cannot drive a herd of sheep if you wanted to. They are not going to do it. But if you're their shepherd and you're walking in front of them, they will follow you wherever you're going to take them. During the uh, Palestinian uprising in Israel uh, in the 1980s, there was this small village outside of Bethlehem. And in this village, uh, they had refused to pay taxes to the Israeli government uh, because they called uh, the tax. They said that they were being paid to an unfair uh, occupation. So, you know, touche. Uh, they had their reasons. But the Israeli army came in and took over the town. When they did that, they took all the animals, because again, it's rural Israel. Uh, these people are not wealthy. They took all the animals and they put, they built this huge pen outside of the town, barbed wire, guards with guns, and they put all the animals in there and guarded them 24-7. And we're kind of going to starve out this little village. And so after a few days, a week, whatever it was, this woman came up to the soldier who was in charge and said, can you please let me have my animals? I'm a widow. I don't have any money. If you don't give me access to these animals, my kids and I are literally going to starve. Like there's no other financial option for us. This is it. And the soldier was kind of calloused and, and he just laughed at it and was like, whatever. There's no way you could even find your animals in this if you wanted to. There's no chance. And immediately the woman said, wait, if I can get my sheep to come out, just mine, will you let me take them home? And the guy, again, he just laughed at her. He was like, whatever, sure. So he calls over to the guy at the gate and says, let her try. If she can get her sheep, then she could take them home. Immediately her son walks over to the gate. He takes out a little flute from his jacket and he starts to play. When he begins to play, 25 sheep heads pop up. That's all she had, 25. They all pop their heads up and they start moving towards the gate. And he continues his little Pied Piper routine all the way home from that point. Jesus tells us that he calls his sheep by name and that they come that they know his voice in an intimate way that gives them safety, that gives them knowledge that it's good where he's going to lead them to, that they know it deeply within themselves. He doesn't rely on force to make us move. He doesn't rely on fear and, and kind of forcing us to just go wherever he's driving us to. He calls. He says that word. He plays that song. And we know who it is that's leading us. As Eugene Peterson said, Jesus is personal, extravagantly personal. When we deal with Jesus, we're not dealing with a spiritual principle, a religious idea, an ethical cause, or a mystical feeling. He is present totally, relationally, and intimately. 
and a good shepherd protects his sheep. Verse 9 said, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. I think this is kind of a, a, a weird one for us because one, it's an inanimate object. So why would you call yourself an inanimate object? It's like, I am the stapler. Those who come to me will be collapsed together forever. I, I don't know. Like, it's just a weird one. Whatever. Choose what you want, I guess, Jesus. You're God. You can. Uh, but there's also the aspect of it that it, like, feels kind of exclusionary. It's very exclusive. Like, oh, the only people who get in come through the gate, huh? It feels a little odd to us, especially in our culture today, I think. So a sheep pen was set up this way. In Jesus' time, in the Old Testament especially, it always would have been built around a canyon wall or a cliff face. That was one wall of it. And the rest were all stones. They would have been built up, and the shepherds would have put dried thorn bushes over top of the walls. And there would have been only one way in or out. Sometimes they actually had a door there. And that door would be covered by dried thorn bushes again when the shepherd would leave, when the sheep were in. And other times, there was nothing there. And at that point, that was when the shepherd was on guard. That was his, that was his bed. So there was a theologian who was doing research in the Middle East in the last 20 years. And he was just kind of enjoying Israel and like touring around. And, and he was talking to, he came across an Arab shepherd. And this guy wasn't a Christian. He had no biblical knowledge. He was probably Muslim, I would guess. And he starts talking to him about his sheep. And the dude's getting like super excited, like everybody does when they talk about their sheep. And he's like pointing out all the stuff and he's pointing out the pen and he's like laying out for him like what he's done. And he points to it and he says, in there, when the sheep go in there, they are perfectly safe. And the researcher's like, there's no door. How are they perfectly safe? And the guy says, yes, you got it. When they're in there, they're perfectly safe because I am the gate. And the researcher's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, what do you mean? And the guy looks at him and he says, after my sheep are in the pen at night, I lay down over the threshold and I am the gate. No sheep can get out without waking me. No animal can get in to harm them without me knowing it first. I am the gate. When Jesus says this, he's not saying that everybody's excluded from getting in. Other sheep are more than welcome to come in if they want to. Uh, that, that's not an issue. What Jesus is saying is that he is our protection, that he very literally lays himself across the threshold the threshold, that he becomes our only barrier of defense, that if anything tries to come in, that he is going to protect us. No danger is going to be able to come in when he is laying there over the threshold of the gate. The gates to keep the sheep protected. Jesus isn't some bouncer who wants to keep people out. He's our protection, who wants to make sure that the only things that get in are good. He's put himself between us and any danger that would come towards us. And a good shepherd goes after the lost. Verse 16, I have other sheep too. 
that are not in this sheepfold, and I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock with one shepherd. In Luke 15, Jesus expounds upon this and tells this parable. He says that there was a shepherd who had lost one of his hundred. And so he put the other 99 away, and then he went after the one. And when he found it, he put it on his shoulders, and he carried it home safely. And then when he got home, he threw a party because he was so excited that he had found that one sheep that was still out there. And Jesus was saying that that's what happens when one of us return home, when one of us come back to him. Because you know the reality is Jesus isn't telling us that he throws a party for every straggler that's three steps behind us. Maybe he does, but that's not what this is about. This is about the one who he thinks is dead. This is about the one who he thinks is so far gone that there's no way anybody's going to be able to find them by the time that he reaches that one, that there's surely going to be an animal that got him, or because they're a sheep, maybe that they walked off a cliff, that there's going to be some harm that has come to them, but he found them. Jesus is telling us that he throws a party because he goes after the ones who are really, really far gone the leader who screwed up big time and left a trail of heartbreak and hurt. He goes after the addict who's burned every single bridge in their life. He goes after the, the parent who had an affair and then wanted nothing to do with their kids after that. He goes after the outspoken atheist who we think has no interest in Jesus, but who Jesus knows in their heart there's something that when he hears that word, they'll come and follow. He goes after the extreme cases that we would never expect to know the voice of the good shepherd, and he brings them home. One theologian said that the sinners and outcasts need to hear that Jesus does not delight in their extermination, but rather is wooing them to come to him so that they might live. They need to know that there's a place for the adulterer, the alcoholic, and the drug addict. He goes after the impossible ones, and he throws a heck of a party when he finds them, carrying them home on his shoulders. So we come to an end. Ezekiel 34 says this. I myself will search and find my sheep. I myself will tend my sheep and give them a place to lie down in peace. I will search for the lost ones who strayed away, and I will bring them safely home again. I will bandage the injured and strengthen the weak. Friends, the beautiful news is that Jesus doesn't let us rot in the hands of bad leaders. He takes over. He searches for us. He calls for us. He serves us. He leads us. He heals us. He saves for us. And he died for us. I think the reality is that most of us here have probably been hurt by somebody who was in leadership over us. Boss, pastor, parents, there's lots of examples. And the scars that that leaves in our lives are hard to get through. They're hard to get past because every time we start to move towards Jesus, that muscle memory starts to flare back up again. That, that hurt spot starts to, starts to get, get a little bit more hot. It starts to flinch, and then you're not able to get past it because of fear that you're going to get hurt again. 
it blocks us. And that's true for lots of us, I would guess. But here's the good news. Other leaders might not always be trustworthy, but Jesus always is. Jesus is always loving. Jesus will never fail. Jesus will never leave you. Don't be afraid to follow the leadership of the good shepherd. And when you're being led by him, that healing that you need, it's going to come. He's going to search for you. He's going to find you. He's going to bring you back and he's going to save you. You'll be brought home. The thief, the ultimate bad leader, his purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus's purpose is that we would have a rich and satisfying life. And I think we all want that. We want lives that are full and that are filled with healing, not lives that are just filled with scars and pain. And Jesus wants to lead us to that place. So as the worship team comes back up, if you'll all stand and let's pray as we transition to a time of worship. Jesus, I just thank you this morning that you are our good shepherd, that you lead us well, that you care for us, that you protect us. I pray this morning that we, each and every one of us, will hear your voice, that we'll hear it just really clearly and know that you're leading us to safe places, to good places for us. Come and bring healing where there's been hurt. Bring restoration where we need restored. Jesus, we love you. We, we say that today we want to follow you, so come and lead us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.